Well, this morning we're back in the, the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter one. And you can name this quote. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Right, Snow White, you've seen Snow White. The, the wicked witch in that story sure liked it when the mirror told her uh, that she was the fairest, but when the mirror told her that she wasn't, she got very angry and very jealous. That's the thing about mirrors. They always tell us the truth, even if we don't wanna hear it or see it. You know, part of our morning ritual is coming face to face with the mirror, hopefully. Most of us probably get our first look at ourselves while we're still scary looking. Hair going sideways, morning breath and all. And facing our mirrors first thing in the morning is not that pleasant of an experience. The mirrors are very honest things. They, they don't compromise. Uh, they don't gloss over our defects and tell us we're better looking than we really are. They, they show every wart, every wrinkle, every gray hair. They show us who we are. So why do we have mirrors in our bathrooms? Well, because as, an, as unpleasant as it may be to confront our own faces first thing in the morning, we know that if we don't take a look at ourselves and make some minor and sometimes major adjustments, the rest of the world is going to see that morning face. And so you install mirrors in your bathroom for the benefit of yourself and for the world. Thank you. We need mirrors in our lives not only for our sake, but for the sake of others. But the thing about mirrors, as I said, is, and, and the thing that we need to understand about mirrors is they're not there just as decoration. They're there to promote action. And James has been uh, showing to us the mirror that we need for our lives. And this morning we come to the passage that speaks to our need to, to see ourselves using the mirror of Scripture and respond. And we're going to continue in the study and I want to read this section here, James verses 19, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, and then we'll, we'll pray and get started. James chapter 1, starting at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless." Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This morning, we're gonna look at just three verses in that section, verses 22 through 25. And, and there's three points you should have received when you came in. If you didn't, we have an outline in, in the foyer uh, of the three points this morning. First, the hearer. It's, it's really difficult. If you don't have it, you can write it down. The hearer, the doer, the reward. You got that? The hearer, the doer, the reward. And there's some subpoints in there and that, that we'll cover. So let me begin with pray, prayer. Uh, I'll pray for you. You pray for me. 
as we get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we could gather together as the body of Christ, the, the family here at Edgewood and Milton, and we ask that you would help your people as they sit under uh, the preaching of your word, that you would bring understanding to them of what your word says, that they would see it and understand it, that you would bring conviction to their hearts, areas where they need to grow, that you would help them to not just take in this morning listening and hearing, but that they would do, that they would respond to what your word says and apply it to their life, that you would, Holy Spirit, do that work in their lives. And, and most definitely, God, may they see Jesus Christ in the midst of all of this as the one who, who died for us and, and helps us now in our very need to, to live for you. And we ask this, God, that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, the hearer. And I need to remind you, again, this is James writing to to the church here. These are not unbelievers, but to the church that's dispersed. These are believers that are part of a local bodies. They, they attend church together. They, they sit under the preaching of God's word. They, they serve one another. They love one another. They're, they're people just like you who are sitting here this morning. And he just finished a long section in verses 1 through 18 of, of those believers that are experiencing trouble in their lives. And suffering comes to all of us in some way. And James' concern was that they persevere through it and that God would bring bring growth and refinement to their life and their faith in him. And then James moves to the topic of the word in verses 19 and, and through the end of the chapter. And the word is vital to the growth of a believer. Whenever we come to sit under the teaching of the word, we need to come with patient listening ears. We covered that a couple weeks ago. Ready to receive God's word, ready, ready to hear. But James doesn't leave us there. You know, he says in our passage this morning in verse 22, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he was like a man who looks intently at his face, his natural face, in a mirror. And, and, and James is trying to emphasize yet again, we can't just come and sit under the word and just listen. We need to act on what we hear. So James describes these two people in this section, the hearer and the doer. That's my outline. They're, just, they're distinct in these verses too. The hearer is complacent with themselves when they hear the word of God. It has no real effect on them. They, they casually listen to it and they are carelessly handling it. So those are the two negatives there that we'll look at with the hearer. They're casual with the word and careless with the word. So first, they're, they're casual. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. James is calling out those that sit in church every week and casually listen but never really do anything with the word. Another version says merely hearers. There's a there's casualness to them that when they confronted with the word of God. The Greek word hearers here, akrotias, was used for those that sit passively in an audience to listen to a speaker or a singer. And today, this word, we would use it appropriately for those that would audit a class. You ever did that in school where you audited a class? You know what it is, right? You can go, you can do that now. In fact, I think you have to pay, but you can go and, and audit a class at a college or a seminary and, and not be required to do the work. You could come and listen to what was being said or even read the books and they, as they tell you, but there's no requirement on you. And that's what he's saying here. They, 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 they're auditing a class. 
There's no, uh, there's no uh, desire to, to apply what, what's being said. And, you know, if you audit a class, there's no real pressure. Who cares if you come? Who cares what he says? It doesn't matter. I'm just auditing. It doesn't affect my grade. You could listen. You could, you could daydream for all the, the professor cared. You wouldn't have to write papers. You wouldn't have to take any tests. You were ultimately not held accountable in any way for what you heard. And tragically, there are some in churches today who audit the word of God. That's how they approach the word of God. I'm just auditing the class. Not knowing that there is a test. They say, this, this is just something I'm doing. This is just a class that really, I, I, I'm just fulfilling my time. There's no purpose for it. I mean, I'll come when I can. I'll listen if it's intriguing, if it's exciting, if it wows me. But if not, meh. I'll just audit. And perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you come to church and sit through a sermon casually. You don't engage. You don't look to apply it to your life. You don't give another thought to what was said on Sunday during the week. You don't take notes. You don't even open your Bible even. You just you sit. You try to focus, but maybe you're not that successful. And I'm not just talking to adults here. Youth, I'm talking to you. If there's one thing that I could say to the junior high, senior high Jeff Coulter, first I would slap him in the back of the head and stop being an idiot, Jeff. And then I would say, listen. Listen to what's being preached. I was in church too, every Sunday. I don't remember a Sunday not being in church growing up. It wasn't until college that I remember learning stuff in sermons. And if this is you, friends, James warns you here. He's warning you. The danger of being casual with the word, what can happen? He says, you could be deceived. For those that are hearers only, you're deceiving yourself. Deceiving. What is, what is James saying here? Causing someone to, to deceive someone is causing someone to believe something that isn't true. And James is saying that when you come to the word and listen only to it, not doing it, you deceive yourself. Deceiving is to, to reason beside the point, to, to misjudge. It's to deceive by false reasoning or to fool yourself. It's to defraud or to cheat. Self-deception is ultimately a false self-reckoning. Do you know what that means? If you reckon yourself, if you count yourself to be a Christian, and yet you don't ever obey the word of God, you deceive yourself. If you sit under the word of God and never do what it says, you're probably not a Christian. Now you think I went forward at camp at nine years old. God's not looking for that. God's looking for obedience to it because of a life change. But that's not all. We can see this in many ways in our world today. There's many other ways that people deceive themselves. People deceive themselves into thinking that their sexuality is their own. That they were made to pleasure themselves. And so if they begin to feel that they're possibly attracted to someone of the same sex, they justify it by saying this is how they were made. So they have every right to find enjoyment. They say no one can come and say that it is wrong, even the Bible. And they hear the word, but they don't act on what the word says. Their desires trump what the word says. They, they long to obey their desires over and against what the word says. 
And in so doing, friends, they deceive themselves. People deceive themselves into thinking that marriage isn't really for the long haul of life. When things get bad, really bad, and their spouse has done something they don't like, they, they feel that they can bail. People can deceive themselves into thinking that God isn't really for them since they've had so many struggles and pains and, and trouble in their life. And for them, God obviously is, is not a good God. But James is speaking to their issue as well. They're self-deceived. But the greatest way that we can deceive ourselves is if we are truly a Christian or not. Churches in the U.S. are filled with people that believe they are Christians because they come to church. They are deceiving themselves. It's a, a gross miscalculation. If you believe that all you have to do is show up at church once in a while to sing some songs, to give money, perhaps serve once in a while, and that you're good, you possibly deceived yourself. Without having the word have its way in your life, without having the word change you, you're making a gross mis miscalculation. See, being a Christian is not about God rewarding you for your good behavior. Christianity is about God forgiving you for how bad you really are. Now, is hearing the word preached important every week? Yeah, absolutely. But to, to believe that all you have to do is sit in church and listen to sermons... Friends, you're deceiving yourselves. You need to, to think more deeply about what James is saying here. An old Scottish expression speaks of a false Christian says, they are sermon tasters who never tasted the grace of God. Any response to the gospel that does not include obedience and faith is self-deception. If a profession of faith in Christ does not result in a changed life that, that brings hunger and thirst for God's word and desire to obey God's word, but the profession is just that, a, a mere profession. And Satan, of course, would, would love such professions because they give church members the, the damning notion that they are saved when they're truly not. They still belong to him, not to God. They're, they're prof professors, not possessors of God's life. I was away last week at a conference and, and uh, because I fit in visiting my parents and and the conference was a distance, I, I drove a lot. And before that, I, I downloaded the Screwtape Letters. If any ever read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, you need to get it if you haven't read it. Uh, but listening to that as I, as I drove, and it's a story from the vantage point of Uncle Screwtape writing to his apprentice, Wormwood. And, and who's there, he has a patient, as he called him. So it's written from the negative vantage point of, of Satan and those trying to dissuade um, Christians. And he's He's writing to his nephew to dissuade this one, his patient, from following Christ. And quote, he says, The great thing is to prevent his doing anything. As long as he does not convert into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about his, this new repentance. Let the little brute wallow in it. Let him, if he has any bent that way, write a book about it. That is often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the enemy plants in a human soul. Let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able to ever act, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. And perhaps, friend, that's you. You've fooled everyone into thinking that you're a Christian. And friend, I'm glad you're here this morning, but you haven't fooled God. He knows you, and get this, he brought you here this morning. 
Because he's not done with you. To sit under his word. He brought you here for a reason. Possibly to turn you from a sermon taster into one who can taste for the first time the grace of God. And I implore you, friend, to humble yourself. Humble your heart before God this morning and trust in Christ and him alone in faith. Don't be casual with the word. Secondly, we shouldn't be careless with the word. Look at verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. James wants to get, make sure his point gets crossed to the people and he paints a vivid picture for us. He used an illustration of a mirror. And first century mirrors were not made of glass, but rather some kind of, of metal such as bronze or silver or, or gold if you were more wealthy. And the metal would be beaten until it was flattened and then polished to a high gloss. And although the reflection of the image was adequate, it certainly wasn't perfect. But you could see yourself in it. And so James has these two types of people, the doer, and we're going to get to that in a minute, and the hearer. And the hearer comes before the mirror, and that's the word of God. In fact, I don't want to go too far on a trail here. I don't know why James didn't say that the woman comes before the mirror. Because then it seems more accurate, doesn't it? No one's going to agree with me, huh? <laughs> men, you're smart to not do that. Us men might look at the mirror, but it's usually a glance. Women look, and, and I know I'm getting in trouble here, but I'm, I have a point, but I'm already down the path. <laughs> it's going to keep going. I think it's a proven fact that women spend more time in front of the mirror than men. And I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say because of vanity. Don't, don't go there and accuse me of that. I'll leave that up to the Holy Spirit. I simply say women look at the mirror to see if something's out of place. Your hair, your makeup, your eyebrows that need plucking. You stand before the mirror as long as you need to make things right. Is there any woman that's going to agree with me this morning? All right, a few. I probably dug a hole, but that's right. There, my point is, as I said earlier, there's a reason for looking into the mirror. And, and, and James is using this to illustrate something. He says they look intently. So really, he's talking about women because men are not intent in this. You're not. I've seen a few of you. We'll buy you a bigger mirror. It's, it's attentive scrutiny is what he's saying. You, you look with deliberateness. You're careful. There's a, a penetrating absorption of what is seen. And, and what does James say we look at? He says we look intently at his natural face. Now, this is important. This is the normal face. This is the, the face of existence. The face you were born with. This is pointing to who you are. And you take a long, hard look. And that's what we do when we come to the word of God. If, if the Bible is the mirror and we look at our natural face, what do we see? Who are we when we come to the Bible? We're sinners. Every single one of us, every single day, we, we see that. And we don't naturally want to see this. And so we turn away and we forget. Forgetting is a problem that has been plaguing believers for years. Forgetting. We're not the first. Back in the Old Testament, with Moses warning the people in Deuteronomy. Do you guys remember this? Deuteronomy 6. Look it up. I'll, list, I'll read it to you, but listen. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. 
He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You catch all the practical ways that God gives in these verses to remember his word, to teach your kids. And friends, if you're here and you don't have kids in your home, um, just join the church and we'll plug you in. You can teach kids here, okay? And we'd love to have you join and, and do that. But at home, whether you have kids or not, your house should be filled with the word of God. Talk about the Bible at breakfast, in the car. If you're racing to the next thing and you have a breakfast bar and the kid in the back seat, talk about the Bible then. Text message your spouse more than what the schedule is, but what you read in the Bible. Talk about the Bible during dinner. Talk about it at bedtime. Talk about it when you wake up and keep going. Your, your life should be filled more with just work and school and sports. You need the word of God plastered over everything. And why is that? Because we forget God's word. We forget what he says to us. And this is the same for God's people. Just two chapters later in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest you, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. Well, that sounds familiar. And when your herds and flocks multiply and, and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the, the rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna. And he's saying, don't forget. Don't forget what God has done. Don't forget the word. God, we, we can't forget his word. And we have to understand something about ourselves. We're prone to forget. And we can't. We need to let the word of God lodge in our hearts and in our minds. Friends, the, mirror, the word is a mirror to our soul. And there are some, even perhaps today, that are here and they have heard the gospel over and over for years, but it's never made any penetration to your soul because you can't see yourself as a sinner. I mean, you recognize you're not perfect, but, but really, are you that bad? Are you, are you really God's enemy? And so you, you walk away from the mirror, the Bible, and you forget, you ignore. And you're a hearer, nothing more. And you may play the part of a Christian, but you've never been born again. And yet, there's still others here today who are saved. And you forget so easily of what God's word says. You forget who you are in Christ. And there's something in our hearts that do not want to really see who we are. You know, the human heart is complex and the human heart tends to forget the good and the true. And sin has coated our heart with Teflon when it comes to truth. We forget good things and we forget true things 
And somebody says, uh, that's not true for me. I, I, I can never forget what my father told me when he was so angry at me. I can never forget what he said. I can never forget what my spouse said before she left or what he left. And when these awful things that have come into our heart, we can't forget them. And that's exactly what the Bible says. That's why to forgive and forget is a bunch of crock. It's not a biblical idea. The Bible says your heart is so twisted that you remember bad things. You remember ugly things, disgusting things, harmful things, and you can't forget them. But the good things, the true things. And you read the Bible a hundred times and it says you're loved and you're accepted and you forget it. One person comes up to you one time and says you're ugly and everyone hates you and you can never forget you never forget what they said. So if our hearts are naturally built to forget truth and remember the bad, then, then listen, friends, we have to overwhelm the bad with the good. Your heart just wants to race to that things that aren't true and it forgets all the things that are. Scripture is, is this mirror to our souls. Scripture shows us our sin. It shows us all of our, our sin and ugliness and wretchedness. And it shows us that we come naked and ashamed before the Bible because it opens us up. It shows us who we really are. And that's what mirrors do for the outside. But, but this mirror, the, the, the Word of God, shows us the inside. It shows us who we really are, what we're really trusting in, what we're building our lives on. And this same scripture then shows us grace, who Christ is. It shows us, as Christians, who we are in Christ. And that's why we need the word of God every single day. And we can't come to scriptures like men do to the mirror, looking at themselves and forgetting what they saw. Probably men here who couldn't pick themselves out of a police lineup. Some of you I recognize too, I've, I've talked to you, are, are so just bent on, on always looking for the negative. You can't remember who you are in Christ. You forget so easily. And friends, the scriptures are there as a mirror to show you yet again. Some of you habitually beat yourself up. You question everything. You, you question every part of your life. When Jesus is standing there saying to you, I died for you. I know you, friend. You're accepted. You're mine. You're already mine. And you need to listen to Jesus. Your heart is Teflon and you want to forget it, but you need to remember who Christ is and what Christ did for you. James says there's a tremendous need for a certain intensity when it comes to, to looking and reading and studying the Bible, to getting the truth of God into your life because your heart is naturally allergic to this truth. It, it doesn't want to see who we really are. It doesn't want to see who God really is. And you're going to forget. If you're not, if you're not fighting for this, friends, every day to spend time in his word, you're going to fight every minute. You're, you're going to forget the truth. And life will take you out. And this, friends, 
This is another reason why it's so vital for you to connect to a church and get involved. This is crucial for the growth of a believer. You need the word of God preached. You need it explained. You need other brothers and sisters with you on this journey as you learn what God's word says and apply it to your life. This is why it's crucial for you to be a committed member, not just a casual and careless attender. It's crucial for you to get connected to a care group, walking with other believers as they walk with Jesus Christ. And so many of you are trying to walk this life all by yourself. And I just need to say this. Stop it. Just stop. You'll fail. Why? Because you're doing it differently than God planned. This is why we have small groups. It's not to boost other programs. It's, it's that people would walk with other believers in their lives. In fact, we have a new small group starting tonight in Auburn, and they need more people. They, they're opening their home. They're, I think, preparing dinner even. They're, they're saying, come, welcome, join us. And I would say to you, friends, if you're not, don't delay. Don't talk yourself out of it. Get connected. Get plugged in. There's another care group that meets on Thursdays that's open for a lot more families. Don't continue on a path where you're just walking by yourself. You need other believers in your life. God didn't plan the church to complicate your life. He gave you other members to walk with you, to encourage you. You need the church, brothers and sisters. You, you won't make it in this Christian life without the church. And so stop holding the church at arm's length. Come, join the church. Walk with us. Share the good and bad with us. I, I can't promise that everything will go perfectly. We're, we're going to walk with other sinners. But you're not going to find a perfect church because as soon as you join, you make it not perfect. I'm not perfect. We can handle it. We can walk through it because we have the word. We have God leading us. So I encourage you, don't continue to walk around as hearers only. Don't be casual and careless with the word. But secondly, we need to be a doer. We need to be a doer. The doer is a stark contrast to the hearer. And James is quick to, uh, to come back in, in verse 22. The word doer means to become something, to, to come into existence, to develop a, the characteristic of obedience. It comes from the Hebrew idiom to, to be a word maker, which means we should be people who live by the word, who act on the message. We make the word real in our lives, and it's seen by others. And you see, friends, it's easy to sit and listen to a sermon each week. That's the easy part. It's hard to go and apply the word to your life. Man, I don't know about you. I, I, when I sit and I went to a conference and sat through six sermons in a day and a half, and I loved it. Because I'm always the one preaching. But I take notes and I have to go back and I have to review it because it can just be so much and I'll forget so much. It's easy to sit through a sermon. It's hard to apply it. And what makes, it makes, it's what makes our faith genuine. Something that James will explore in chapter 2. Obedient Christians are word doers. Jesus talks a lot about this in the Gospels. One in particular is one that I share in most wedding ceremonies. There's a few people here that I've married, so I share this in your ceremony. Matthew 7, the wise man, the foolish man, building their house. 
Let me read the verses. Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. You guys are singing the song, aren't you, right now? Sing it. And the, white, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus has a way of laying things out simple for us, doesn't he? There are wise, the doers, and the foolish, the hearers. The wise hear and obey and they put the word into action. They, they live their life on the word. And, and when storms come, they, they're okay because they've built their lives on, on God and his word, but not so with the foolish. They hear and they neglect, they reject, they forget, and they build their lives, their house on the sand, and everything crumbles. And you may be thinking, why do I share this at a wedding ceremony? Well, this is really important for a wedding. Because I'm not so much concerned about the ceremony. I know the brides are, and I, okay, I, let's make it beautiful. I get that. But I don't care about that, not nearly as much about the, wet, the marriage. When two people decide that they want to spend their lives together, they're faced with a decision. On which foundation will they build their lives? On which foundation will they build their family? Every couple that comes before me, I ask this, because you'll either choose to build your lives on the word, on the rock, or you will build your life on the world, on the sand. And I can say with 100% certainty, if you build your life on the sand, it will crash. It will burn, it will destroy you, it will destroy your marriage. It will destroy everything. God's word is true. You build your lives on the word. You build your marriage on the word. You do what the word says. And that's what James is saying to us. You build your life on anything other than God's word and things will go poorly. Don't be a hearer, be a doer. And what do doers do? Well, two things. First, they examine the word. Look at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. A doer examines the word. They study it. They look intently into it. It's a, a penetrating absorption of the word. It, it means they are gazing at it. Another way of expressing it is that they stoop down to look at it intently. And, and, and when I was looking at that, I was thinking of one of my kids this summer. And what do kids do when they come across a bug that they like? Well, as, a, as an adult, you, kinda, you can't stoop down because then it would look foolish. But a kid doesn't care, right? A kid just gets down there. They get really close to that bug, and they want to they look at that. They don't care about their clothes. Mom's telling them, whatever, I don't care about dirt. I want to see that. I want to stoop down. I want to have intense interest on that bug. I saw this firsthand. I have kids in my house who scream bloody murder if there's a bug inside the house. And then summer came, and I had a kid one time we were camping, find a caterpillar, and was picking up and petting it and naming it. And I'm thinking, whose child are you? But she would just stare at it, get as close as she could to her eye. It's, this is what he's saying, how you treat the word of God. It's not just a casual or careless looking back. Yeah, I see that. It's, it's in. It's an absorption that's so strong. I want to see. I want to understand what God's word says. 
And this is what James says of the doer. They have a dedication and desire to look intently into the word of God. They examine it. They study it. They ask others about it. They ask, well, what does it mean here? How do I understand this? What, what does this mean for my life now? And this relates back to the mirror analogy. When you stare at the mirror, you can either do it haphazardly or you can do it to learn something of yourself. And now if you look into the mirror and you see something off, you have a choice, right? Remember back in verse 21 in James chapter 1? He says to us, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. How do you know if you have filthiness? How do you know if you have rampant wickedness in your life? It only comes when you face the mirror of God's word. And it would be foolish to look at the mirror and see something, to see something wrong with your face out of place and not make an adjustment. If Go to the mirror after a meal and see a big hunk of food in your teeth. For the sake of everyone else, take it out. You make an adjustment. It, it affects what you do when you see it. And the same for us spiritually. To look at the mirror of God's word to see sin and then fail to confess it and repent of it is foolish. And this is where the rubber meets the road if you're a hearer of the word or a doer. And then just like the mirrors on our wall, the Bible doesn't lie to you. If the word reveals something that you need to repent of and you need to walk away without doing it, you're no different than the non-Christian. John Calvin said, obedience is the mother of true knowledge of God. You know, do you want to know God? Do you really want to know him? You know the word and you learn about God and you obey. You examine the word and you apply the word. You do what it says. That's the only way. Well, it leads to the second point, applying the word, the last half of verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. Being a doer of the word, we, we persevere to apply it. When the believers discover God's truth, he, he abides in it. He understands that this is the purpose behind God revealing it to him. God doesn't just reveal the word to be learned and not obeyed. That doesn't make sense. And, and you don't study the mirror. You study what the mirror reveals. It reveals God's will and his truth for your life. He says he studies the perfect law. This is called perfect because scripture is inerrant. It's, it's sufficient. It's comprehensive for all your lives. Psalm 19 talks about that. This is the word. But, but James calls it the law, something he does a few times in the book. And because of this, James lays a particular emphasis on the law's commands to men, his requirement for genuine and positive response of obedience to those commands. And by referring to the word as the law of liberty, James focused on the redemptive power in freeing believers from the bondage of sin and then freeing them to righteous obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us this in John chapter 8. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we are free to serve God, not out of fear or even just a sense of duty, but a genuine sense of gratitude and love to serve him because he's freed us from the penalty of sin. And perhaps soon we'll be free from this world. Free from the corruption, from the fallenness, and from our flesh, and from the 
temptation of sin. So how do we do this? How, how do we apply the word? It says, uh, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this. He, he says, go out and do what the Bible tells you to do, but never stop looking. Never stop looking. Do, do you see that? In other words, the, the image is not you look in the mirror and then you go off and obey it. Because he says, if you look in the mirror, you get some truth, then, then you go off and try to do it. That's not true. We'll forget. You have to take the mirror with you. See, so, so many of us are, are, are working towards looking at the mirror to study, and then we leave it. And we then go try and we fail because we forget the word. You never stop looking at the word. Willpower is not the point here. You have to look. For example, when, when Stephen was facing his execution with patience and love in Acts chapter 7, how did he do it? Stephen didn't say, you know, I, I'm a Christian and I'm going to be strong. I'm just going to be strong. I'm going to be calm. No, it says in, in, in Acts 7, he looked. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He didn't say I had a vision that I looked. No, he says he looked and he had a vision. He looked up and then he saw it. He, he wasn't saying, I'm just going to try to be a good person. No, he looked. He looked to God. And for us, we have the word. And we live in a country where we can take it everywhere. We need to look to the word. We need to take the mirror with us. You have to take the word of God with you. You have to read it. You have to study it. You have to memorize it, friends. You have to know it. And this has to be a priority for your life. And when it is when the discipline of knowing and applying God's word happens, James says there's a reward. My last point there, the end of verse 25, he will be blessed in his doing. See, there's an end for the doer, not the hearer, but the doer and its blessing. That's a, quite a general theme there. Blessing, what does it mean? It means you will have freedom. If you look intently into the law, into the word, and see what it says about yourself and continue to do what it shows you to do, he says you will be free. And you might say, how does a law bring you freedom? How can any law bring you freedom? That's a good question. Part of the reason is we tend to define freedom as removal of restrictions. Right, we, we just want all the restrictions off. Now I'm free. But the Bible says we're free when we live within the restrictions. And we, we don't see that naturally. We, we push against that. Our, our definition of freedom is, is flawed. And you see the biblical definition of freedom is that you are free. You have been released to be truly what you were meant to be, what you were built to be. You are free when you can fully realize your true self and your true nature under the restrictions of what God has for you. And for your life. And friends, the perfect example of this is a fish. Anyone fish? Three people. Had anyone seen a fish before? How's that? Just make sure you're still awake. Here's a fish. Fish have gills. 
What do gills do? They extract oxygen, not from the air like our lungs do, but from water. The fish has fins. The fins do not propel it over land, but propel that fish in the water. Here's the fish. The fish has water, and then there's land. Where should the fish go? Go ahead and answer. Good, you're still with me. You're smart, too. Now, if you define freedom as the absence of restrictions, then you could say, well, if this fish is really free, you have to let the fish be on land as well as water. Okay, let's try that. Come on, fish. Exercise your freedom. And watch it flop up on the hot pavement and give it an hour, see what happens. How, how free are you going to be in an hour, fish? Of course, the, the answer is unless the fish is restricted to the water, it loses its freedom. Freedom defined positively is the ability to fulfill what you're built to do, to fulfill what your, your true nature is. And on the hot pavement, the gills don't work, the fins don't work, the fish dies. If you restrict the fish to the water, then it swims like lightning, it darts everywhere, it has speed, it has vitality, it has strength. In real life, freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It's finding the right restrictions. It's finding the restrictions that allow you to live the way you were meant to live. I mean, it's the same in every aspect in our life. You buy a car and you, you just can't drive it and never change the oil. Right, Cooper? That would go bad. Cooper knows cars. You have to open up the manual, which says you need to change the oil. If you don't, if you don't have any oil, your car won't drive. You think, I want to be free. Why do I have to have this restriction? You have to do what the manual says. There are restrictions. I was on a plane last week. I got up, and I'm a tall man. I don't like sitting in a plane seat because they're never made for people like me. And Avery was in the bathroom, and I'm standing by the, the door where you came in. I, I, I want to go for a walk. Can I open the door? Please tell me no. I'm never going to fly with any of you. Can't do that. I, 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 I am restricted for good measure, for everyone's safety. And freedom comes from restricting yourself to what the owner's manual says. You know where I'm going, right? The Bible is our owner's manual. God made you. He is the author of your life. And he has every right within himself to tell you exactly how you should live. And the only way to learn how we should live is to read the manual is to know the word, to not only hear the word, but to do, to apply the word. And the Bible is the owner's manual for our soul, the owner's manual for your heart. And he says, we will be blessed. We will be blessed when we persevere in obedience to God's word. We see it, I, I see it all the time in our culture, in our world, so many that just want freedom and they leave outside of the manual. And their lives are miserable. And my heart begins to break because I think you don't understand. You want freedom, but you don't understand. 
You don't understand the freedom that you have when you obey what God's word says. God made you. He made me. He knows what he's doing. And then he gave you the book to understand how to live. And yet we so often just drift away to find something else, to live a different way. And James says, you'll be blessed when you obey, when you do what God's word says. It'll be incredible. I need to close up here because we're going to celebrate communion together. I don't know if you realize this, but I don't take lightly the preaching of God's word. I dedicate a large, large portion of my week, every hour, or many hours to study God's word and to prepare a sermon. And that's what I believe, and I believe the elders agree with me, is my greatest job here at EBC. So I say this, I hope you understand what I mean. If everything else fails at EBC, Lord willing, the preaching of God's word won't. And when I sit down to craft a sermon, I have some objectives. I, I need reminders for myself. So I, I have them plastered on my desk. If you want to see them after the service, come on over to my office. You can see them there. They're there to remind me what I need to do every single week. And the first thing I want is, as a listener, I want you to see the text, to rationally see the word of God. This is why I point out things in the text, to take us to different texts, to, to, and to center the text. I want you to see it. I, I want your Bible open in front of you to see it. Ex expositional preaching is preaching in which the main point of the biblical text is being considered is, is now the main point of the sermon being preached. And so this is my goal every week. And, and Lord willing, I, I try to accomplish this every week. But I also, secondly, I want you to feel convicted. I'm convicted and I want you to join me. If all I did was just point out stuff in the text, then, then it would be a lecture. And, and there's no room for that on a Sunday morning worship service. There has to be some pointing of the finger. And you need to see yourself in the text. I want to show you yourself in the text. But I can't stop there. It's, it's not enough to see the text and see yourself. There, there's still yet more. You, you need to take the text, take what you've learned about it, take what you've seen of yourself in the text, and you need to do something with it. You need to apply it. And I recognize at this point, I don't have enough smarts, strength, wisdom, ability to help you here. I, I cannot do anything in this part. I pray every week that, that God would help me to release that because it's not my job to go into your heart at home and apply the word of God. I can't do it. I would be horrible at it. There's someone else that's much better qualified for it. The spirit comes to help you unfold and understand what the word says and apply it to your life. Growth comes through God. Now, there's one more thing though I must do after showing you the text, how it, how it shows you ourselves, how it shows you you, and it shows you where you need to grow and change. There's one more thing I need to show you. I have to show you Christ. I haven't really preached if I haven't shown you Jesus. And when you look at the word, don't you see yourself? Don't you see the history of the stories? Don't you see the areas we need to grow? You need to look for Jesus. He is the only man who ever completely fulfilled the law. Martin Luther discovered that if you looked really intently into the law, into the, into the perfect law, the more intently you looked and the more it dealt with him in a personal 
level and showed him who he was, the, the less free he felt. He felt condemned. Because the more he looked into the law, the more he saw he fell so far short. It wasn't enough for Luther to just see himself. He had to look into the word of God and see the only man who ever fulfilled the law. He needed to see Jesus Christ. And this morning, we have an opportunity to see this clearly in the Lord's Supper. I'm not done yet, but I'm going to ask the men to come forward to serve you as I finish. Christ fulfilled the word of God. He fulfilled the law of God. And by going to the cross and taking the penalty we deserve for our law-breaking. See, there are two ways to fulfill the law. You either keep it or you pay the penalty for breaking it. Either way, the law is satisfied. And Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law once. Then he went to the cross and died and paid the penalty and fulfilled the law again. He, he took the curse our law-breaking deserves so that we could get the blessing his law-keeping deserves. Because we could never satisfy the law by ourselves. God made him who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the only, only when you look into the perfect law and see the only one who has perfectly kept the law. Only when you look into the word of God and see the only one who ever truly did the word of God. Will the world, will of, excuse me, when the Word of God now be in everlasting despair because now you, you know there's no condemnation for you and now you have a completely different reason. And, and Martin Luther discovered it. He, once he looked into the law and saw not just himself, not just how he fell short, but the only one who fulfilled the law, then he said, now I want to keep the law to delight in the one who did this for me, to resemble the one who did this for me, to, to please the one who did this for me. And to know the one who did this for me. See, for him, who at that point, before that was a good Catholic, his motivation for, for keeping the law changed. He wanted to, he wanted to obey God. So the, the, the effectiveness of law keeping changed. He began to feel the word of God. It says he began to feel the word of God as being a tonic. The, the word of God as being a lamp that shrunk his tumors. The word of God was a light for his feet. It no longer was an everlasting despair. It, it was no longer a tear. It was no longer a burden. It, it was life itself, and it brought freedom. And he said it was all because of Jesus Christ. He was freed, finally, to obey out of love for his Savior. Praise the Lord. This morning, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together. And I want to encourage you. This is for those that have trusted in Christ. This, is, this meal is for sinners who know they're redeemed. And so if you're here and you're not a sinner, this is not for you. This is for us who are in Jesus Christ, an opportunity for us to remember what Christ has done. And so I'm going to pray now, and then the men will hand out the bread. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can gather together as the body of Christ here and that we can remember what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. How he paid the penalty for my sins, for our sins. And we can have life eternal through that. Help us to remember, to rejoice, God, as we partake in this this morning 
of what Christ has done for us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.